Good morning. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. New Testament epistle to Hebrews. We are preaching through this wonderful book which focuses on exalting Christ. The question we have before us from last week's message and again today is, are you a mature Christian? I think all of us would hope and like people to say that about us, but we feel very awkward answering that question directly. Yes, I am a mature Christian. Uh, we struggle somewhat, it feels boastful, prideful. Uh, we're also aware of, even though we can see growth, we, we also see weaknesses. Uh, we can be afraid to say, yes, God is maturing me, and we may even doubt whether or not we can mature because we're aware of our weaknesses. But maturity is God's intention. That's his purpose. The, the Holy Spirit dwells in us so that we would become mature people who love God and serve him well. We have seen over all of the weeks studying this book that Christ intercedes with us for us. He goes before us so that we can know him and live for him. We'll see that he always, the Bible says, always lives to intercede for us. It is his constant work. You can grow in maturity because that's God's intention. And because what we see of the greatness of Christ and he is for you in that. Now being mature doesn't mean that we've arrived in every way. A mature tree keeps growing. And so a, a mature believer isn't a Christian who doesn't struggle or a Christian who is fully grown in every grace and, and character of God, but it is someone who is rooted, there is spiritual fruit, and there is stability. And as people see our lives, uh, they can see something of the character of Christ that is growing in us. So that, that's what we're wanting to see. Uh, but as we were pointed to in Dan's sermon last week, uh, the writer was concerned in the church because there was a dullness of hearing, a dullness of hearing the word of God that was keeping many of the people from becoming mature. And that theme continues in verses one to three, which we'll read now. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, 
the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. Uh, God's people were hearing his word preached to them. They were, they were having the correct doctrines taught. But these truths were not taking hold in their life. And so when verse 1 says, lead the elementary doctrines, it doesn't mean to abandon them, to put them behind us and not put a focus on them. It, it means that we need to go deeper than just the basics. Or as we saw in the end of chapter 5 last week, uh, you're only able to take milk in. You're not able to have mature Christian teaching because you have not been taking hold of what you've been given so far. Twice we're told in these verses that they were not holding on to the basics. So we're able to get a sense of what was taking place. Uh, we saw it last week, chapter 5, verse 12. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And then look what we have in verse 1 here of chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. So we have repeated to us that they're, they're needing basic fundamental teaching given to them over and over again because they're not getting it. They're not rooting in. They're not able to go further. What do we do with these teachings? How do we grow in them? And that is because they were dull of hearing. They, it was coming to their ears. It wasn't really transforming their hearts and lives. Now, he, he tells us here in this passage what some of those doctrines were that they were hearing and weren't really laying hold of. And they are given to us in what seems to be a series of three couplets. First, there is repentance and faith. Doctrines that clearly have to do with justification. The, the truths that save us. By repentance and faith, we come to know Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and payment for our sin, that becomes ours, and we are justified and made righteous before God. That happens through repentance and faith. So he is speaking of the teaching of how we come into the kingdom of God. And then he speaks of washings and laying on of hands. Uh, the washings that, that may have included baptism, that step of profession once we've become a believer. It, it could even refer to the ceremonial washings that were very common in Judaism that some of the, the early believers struggled with thinking they had to keep performing them. Uh, we see Jesus dealing with that. Uh, the laying on of hands most likely refers to those coming in uh, to faith and uh, the believers of the church laying on of hands that the Spirit of God might be a part of their life and growing. And so we see here that it has to do with our sanctification, our continuing to grow in righteousness, the Christian life, 
teaching on what does it mean to mature and grow. And then we see the last couplet is resurrection and eternal judgment, where our lives end. Whether resurrection to life with, with Christ forever or condemnation because we have never turned to Christ. And so we see the, the truths that have to do with coming to faith, living out our faith, and where do we end up? We're being given, but they were not clinging to them well. And yet, these are the truths that are the framework of, of how we live the Christian life. Rather than using these truths they need to, to have them laid down over and over again. I don't know if you've experienced this. When my kids were young, there are times you'd go over something that you wanted them to do, and they would just run off ready to go. But if you stopped them and asked, now, what is it you're doing again? You know, there'd be this blank look on their face. Uh, maybe you need to tell me again. They, they heard words, at least they heard a sound from your mouth. And they, they saw this. But the words didn't engage that they actually knew what it was they were supposed to be doing. And you had to go over it again. That's what's happening in the church among believers who by this time should have been maturing. Maturity in biblical truths really does matter. It, it's an issue of great importance. Let me quickly just give three reasons. The first is that biblical truth, maturity, it, it, it's not about knowing words and definitions. It's about knowing the person of God. Biblical maturity is understanding who God is, what he has done, how do we live for him and follow him and be a part of what he is doing. Spiritual truth is knowing the person of God, knowing this exalted Christ we've been hearing about. And so knowing what is it that we have in Christ? What can our lives be? A second reason is, unless we know what's true, we are always open to deception. If we don't know truth well, there are a lot of people who are very convinced and can be very convincing about teaching that maybe is partially true, but fundamentally false. If we don't know truth well, how, how are we on guard when someone who is very convincing or even our, which can be our own spirit at times, that will deceive us. Think of every mess that you've had in your life. We don't have time for you to go over all of it. 
But if you think of the messes of your life, at some point you bought into some deception. You are open to it. You are led into it. You deceived yourself. You followed after it. Deception is what has caused the heartaches of your life. And third, biblical truth is not a narrow category that only has to do with some fringe aspects of life. Biblical truth is about life itself. That's how we know what life and living is. It is to hear from the creator of life his intention of what life is. And so biblical truth has no narrowness. It is the breadth of what it means to live and live well and live healthy. It affects everything in our lives. And so maturity involves... uh, a commitment to take what we hear seriously. Uh, Am I not just hearing and even have some agreement, but am I taking hold? Is Is it taking root in how I live? So how do you receive the word of God? You hear the word of God that you read. It should be with eagerness. The eagerness you have when you get a new device at Christmas, once you figure out how to open the packaging, how does this work? What do I do? Uh, You're thinking about how your life is going to get better or be more fun or be a little bit more cool once you figure out how to use this. Or your kids tell you how to use this. But one way or another, there's an eagerness to understand how this can come into my life and be used. Or we should listen to it with the, intent, with the attention that we would give to a surgeon who has told us that he is going to cut our body open. And we want to know exactly where are we cutting, how much are we cutting, what are we doing once we're in there? How quickly is it over? There's a certain measure of attention we give because this is serious. We not only should receive God's word with uh, this eagerness, uh, attentiveness, but also uh, just with, with joy to savor it uh, like you would a, a love note from someone that your, your heart is given to and you read it over the first time and then you, you want to read it over again slowly, savoring the thoughts that this person is expressing to you. These are all appropriate ways to receive God's word whenever it's shared. Whenever we open it before us. And so, believer, how much energy do you give to what you do with 
the word of God you hear? Is there energy that you use to take this in? Parents, does your family schedule reflect that the word of God is important to be under together the preaching of the word of God? To sit at the table and just read some of it together and ask God, Lord, help us use this today. Your own time. Does your family schedule make that time? Or is your schedule so overtaken by all that you're doing that coming under God's word often gets pushed out? And I, I understand the, the burdens and the pressures of being parents and family life. So it's not wanting to, to beat you up with the question, but if we're to confess how important the word of God is, then the things that you're doing to bless your family, to provide opportunity and experiences for your children, if you are keeping them from the most important experience that they can have, then we're, we're not serving them well or caring for them as well as we can and should. Students, do you think there's a better guarantee in what you give attention to than God's word? There's a lot of people making promises. There's a lot of people out there making a big case for giving your life to this, some cause or idea. It's all out there and it, it looks exciting and wonderful, but where is the guarantee of what you're being told and how it actually can lead you through life and protect your soul? Where does it end up and what authority do those who have so much to say have to guarantee what they say? The exalted Christ has that. And so in this, what we've seen over the last two weeks, God is giving this to us because he wants us to flourish. He wants our lives to be filled joyfully with him and what he has to say to us and the life that his son sacrificially laid down his own to give to us. God wants you to flourish, but grievously there are some in our midst. There are some in the church who will refuse to grow. And that's what the writer begins to address in verse four. He goes on to say, 
For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And he, he gives a, a parable, an example. He says, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now these verses have given many Christians some struggle in, in knowing well, who is this? How are we to understand it? First we need to recognize that there are two groups of people being contrasted. There is a group in verses 4 to 8 and there is a group in verses 9 to 12. And uh, we know that for a couple reasons. The first is how the pronouns change. All through uh, the end of chapter 5, coming into the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, it is speaking of the author of I and of we and of you. And the context he's been speaking of the church, to the church, you. And then in Verse 4, it changes, and he starts speaking of those, verse 4, and they, verse 6. He is speaking now about a different group, and then he comes back in verse 9, and then continues with you again, in your case, and we desire each one of you. And we also see in verse 9, he, he tells us rather plainly, there are two different groups of people. It's as though we speak in this way, that, that harsh language he just used about those people. He says, I speak in this way, but in your case, there, there is an, another group he's addressing. So he, he's been speaking to the church, then he changes pronouns and speaks of a group that are in the midst of the church, but their condition is different. 
And after making that contrast, he comes back to speak to what he has to say for true believers and what they can expect to see from God in their lives. Verses 9 to 12 are clearly believers because he speaks of them and says, beloved of God. And then says, you who have salvation. Verses 4 to 8 are those who are a part of church life but have never truly entrusted themselves to Christ. They know all sorts of things about him. They don't know him. They hear the truth. They experience church life. They see the Spirit of God at work. They hear testimonies of people saying at their baptism how God saved them and changed them of the hope they had. They see people gradually gradually change those who are unstable and they see stability come. They see people whose hearts are overwhelmed with love for God and that overflows how they live. And yet despite all of that, they come and sit and participate and their life is never changed. And they, they truly don't know Jesus. Jesus himself warns of this very clearly. In Matthew chapter 13, he gives a couple parables that we know. The first, the parable of the sower. He speaks of those who seed on hard ground, those that immediately, they hear the gospel, it's ignored, they give no attention to it. But then he gives other examples. Those, the seed of the gospel sinks into the soil and it, it sprouts up quickly, but there's no root and difficulty comes and it, it dries up and is gone. And then there's other seed that, that grows and the life is so consumed with the cares of the world and the interests of life that they never matured. There's no fruit. And all of these, Jesus then contrasts with the seed that falls on good soil and it grows and bears fruit. Then the very next parable, there is the person who had a field of wheat and an enemy came and threw weed, the seed of weeds in the wheat. And the workers were telling the, the owner of the field, what do we do? There's weeds and weed growing up together. He says, just leave it. You can't tell now what is the weed and what is the weed. It's, it's too young. Wait till it all matures. Then you will know what is the wheat and what is the weed. And we know this is the picture because he gives it to us again in our text in verses 7 and 8. There is the land that receives the rain and that which the field was cultivated for takes place. Fruitful growth. But there is other ground 
that receives the gracious reign of God. And all it bears is thorns and thistles. There's, there's no benefit in it. Why, why is this here? So that as the church is hearing about the fact that you need more maturing, that you need to keep growing, the challenge we all recognize is something we have to keep working at. It's not a, a one time we hear, oh, mature in the Lord, and we say, okay, never forget that again. I'm good for life. We need to hear it in different ways. But there, there is a group that they must not be deceived to think that because they're hearing whatever everyone else is, that they're okay. Because, indeed, they're not. In fact, their souls are in the greatest danger that anyone could ever face. If you are hearing about Christ and you are seeing the truth of Christ work and change lives. And you in your soul reject him. He's not gonna rule over my life. I'm not gonna bow my knee to him. For whatever reason, you, you'll keep showing up, but you don't entrust yourself to him. You have neglected Christ thinking you know what it's all about. You have heard and you find it comes up lacking because it has not prevailed upon your soul to humble yourself and call out to Christ who is the only hope given. You are like the soil which drinks in God's gracious rain and produces thorns. To taste the gospel and to ignore Christ is, we're told here, to hold Christ himself up for contempt. Verse 6, they are crucifying once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Jesus was crucified by those who heard his claims to be the Son of God in Christ, and they were not only unmoved, they wanted his voice to disappear, and so they crucified him to silence him. And if you hear the truth of Christ and you silence it within your own soul, the word of God says you are crucifying him as much as those who drove in the nails. And you hold the very Son of God up for contempt. Hear this, 
you are impossibly lost. For it is impossible, we see. It says the word. It is impossible in the case of those who've been enlightened and have tasted and have shared and have gone their own way to restore them to repentance. Your soul is in great danger. All there is to do is to cry out for Christ to have mercy on you. And if you recognize this is you, or you see it as one that you love, and it puts fear in your heart, also know this. Jesus speaks about what is impossible for us and what is not impossible for him. For we see in Matthew 19, Jesus is speaking. He's talking to his disciples. He says, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished. He said, then who can be saved? Because that's impossible. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. You cannot save yourself. You cannot turn your own heart. You cannot even cause yourself to believe. But in God, all things are possible. And that is why Christ came, because it was impossible. There is no other reason that the eternal Son of God would enter humanity forever, take our sin upon himself, allow himself to be crucified, bearing our guilt and shame, paying the price that we could be free. There was no other way for that to happen. It was and is impossible except for Christ. And so call out to him that he would save you. And if you truly see your own soul and the desperation of your need and even if you just see Christ dimly, but there is that little, just a little bit of faith is starting to sprout up. Call on him, and his answer is yes. I will save you fully and forever in this moment. Now some of you may be here thinking, I know I'm weak. What if at some point I leave? What if I fall away? What if it happens to me? Well, let me ask you. 
Did you save yourself? Did you? No. Who saved you? God. How much of your salvation is from God? All of it. How much of it was because of you? None of it. Let me just give a a quick framework. This is what would have to happen for your salvation to be lost if you have truly trusted in Christ. This is what would have to happen for you to lose your salvation. First, the guilt that Jesus himself took from you and put upon himself. He would have to give it back. It is not yours. He took it. It was placed on him. It is his guilt. He became sin for us. It is not yours. You would have to take it back from him. And the price Jesus paid, his own blood and death, paid for that sin, that payment would have to become null and void. God the Father would have to say, insufficient, no longer paid. The new birth that God gave you, you were born again in the Spirit, you would have to kill your new nature. Do you know how to do that? Do you have the power to kill the new nature that was God's gift that you didn't form yourself? That's beyond our ability. The Holy Spirit, who we've already heard, is is like living water, ever flowing, John says, through us. The Holy Spirit would have to dry up, and we would have to cast him out. Are you able to cast out the Holy Spirit? Force him to leave. Your adoption by God would have to be broken. But you didn't adopt yourself, did you? God made that decision. God adopted you. You cannot unadopt yourself. You would have to make God break the eternal covenant he has with the Son to receive the payment and to grant forgiveness. You would have to cause God to break the covenant sealed with the blood of his own son. You would have to silence Jesus, who is our great high priest and ever lives to intercede for us you would have to close his mouth. And the supernatural union we have with Christ that joins us to his death and resurrection, you would have to somehow break it. And you don't even fully understand it. Do we not see from all of Scripture from all that the gospel shows us, to lose your salvation, you would have to conquer Christ. 
You would have to overcome and subdue Christ because he is our salvation. It is to lose him. It is to undo him. It is to put him underneath our feet. How could that ever happen? For us to fall away from God who have truly trusted in him, been born in his spirit, the guilt of our sin paid for that to happen. God would have to let go of us. And he never will. In Christ, your salvation is the most permanent and secure thing that exists in this world. Beloved of God, the big point here, God has better for you. Christ, who is better than, has better for you. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And so he says, verse 11, so because this is secure, this is yours, let's be earnest. Let's be earnest with what Christ has given you, with what Christ is doing. Half-heartedness is a waste of your life. It's a waste of God's goodness. You can't waste his saving grace because that is forever effective. We can waste his goodness that ever flows through our life. All that comes with salvation, he says, it belongs to you. Do something with it. Just take a step with the truths of God. Something you hear. Do something with it. A step. Open your Bible today and tomorrow. Just sit and spend some time with God, just talking with him honestly, letting him know what's in your heart, speaking to him, getting to know him. Take a step of faithfulness, of seriousness. For verse 10 says, and God will not overlook your work. This is the kindness of God. He, he says God won't overlook it because we all know our work. Eh, it's not that strong. <laughs> A lot of inconsistency in it. We see it and we think, uh, but he doesn't overlook your work. And when that little thing you do, once his hands take it up, and now it becomes something of beauty, of everlasting strength and fruitfulness. Oh, put something of your life in Jesus' hands to be used. He will use it well. 
Second, beware then of sluggishness, verse 12. Be earnest so that, verse 12, you may not be sluggish. Sluggishness can creep in when we lose sight of the exalted Christ. And think where that word came from. Sluggishness, slug. Last year, you know, you have a few ants in your house. We had some ants on the counter. No big deal. Smack them, get an ant trap done. The next week, we had slugs. Three ants mean nothing. You don't even pay attention. Three slugs on the floor and counter, we need to move. (laughs) That creeps you out. Don't be a slug. Don't be sluggish. No one likes a slug. Someone in the back, I collect slugs. (laughs) And we thank God for the kindness of your heart in doing so. (laughs) Dullness, weariness is real. It happens to us. We, we feel sluggish. Sometimes we don't even know why. We feel that way at times. Jesus never does. The one helping us going before us, he has never been sluggish. And so if you're struggling with sluggishness, look to him. You don't have to get up the mountain to him. He, he comes into the valley. Just look to him. He comes to you to help make your way a little bit higher up. And lastly, be imitators of those who are faithful, verse 12. Have earnestness that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Each person that is mature, that is growing, each person that is speaking that we should have some imitation of them, I can tell you each one of them struggles regularly. Each one of them walks in weakness every day. But each one seeks to love God more. So think of it. You're already two-thirds of the way there. You already have struggles like they do. You already walk in weakness. The only other thing you need to add is seek to love God more. And don't wait to imitate perfect Christians. Or you, I hate to say it as a pastor, or you're going to have to find another church. We're not waiting to find that exalted Christian who in all of life at all times is the one to emulate. We are to look at and imitate the little bits of grace we see in one another week by week. 
for even those who are early and, and just growing in maturity, we're seeing bits of grace in one another. Imitate those bits of grace that you see. The person that, if you think about it, you know, they're so consistent. They're their tone and demeanor and coming, they're so consistent. Imitate that. Or the person that comes and whenever you spend a few minutes with them, your heart's just encouraged because you can see they're really joyful to be here in the Lord. Imitate that. The person you're hearing how they use some interaction just to let someone know that they go to church and they love the Lord. Imitate that. The person who steps out of their way to help you, imitate that. Imitate the graces of God we see in one another. There's lots to imitate here. We all have those bits of God's grace. See them. Take it up. Use it in your life. Which means that you, believer... You can be part of that example to one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would help us to receive it with the appropriate seriousness, gladness. Help us to live it out. Lord, we ask for our souls to be encouraged in this. Speak to us. We know it's you speaking. And together we pray, if there is anyone here who has been tasting and experiencing what they see of your grace here, and they have up to now just refused to bow to it, somehow thinking they'll be okay, help them to see they are not. Break down all this self-defense in their soul that they would see Christ and call out to him. Lord, give them grace for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.